0: Of June 1991, the body of a 24 year old woman is found in the boot of a car at Gatwick Airport, England. The suspect would be arrested in Boston, Massachusetts, USA soon after. This is the case of the killing of Catherine Ayling. Hi, I'm your host, Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Okay, so before we get into this week's show, don't forget if you're in the Melbourne area on Saturday the 19th of October, there will be a celebration of the True Crime Island's third birthday with Barney and Tara from Bloody Murder. Also, there's going to be True Blue Crime and Shit I've Learned Abroad pod. So a bit of travel and true crime. That'll be 4pm at the Retreat Hotel at Brunswick. So, get on down. So, on to tonight's case. Now, I do remember listening to this on another podcast ages ago. I haven't been able to track it down. I wasn't sure if it was Baz's ESP or True Crime Enthusiast or maybe UK True Crime. Anyway, it was always a case that opened my eyes to what people can do, especially stalkers. Now, we had a few stalking cases early in the year, but... I want to bring you this one because if you don't already know the story, it will boggle your mind on what went on. Okay, so the victim in this case is 24-year-old Catherine Ailey. I'd better mention the sources for this before we start now. These were mainly from my newspapers.com subscription. So in that was The Transcript, The Boston Globe, The Guardian, The Observer, The Independent... The Crew Chronicle, UPI Archives, and the Manchester Evening News. Okay, so again, the victim in this case is 24-year-old Catherine Ayling. Formerly of Arundel, Catherine was studying humanities at the Crew and Al College in Cheshire, England. This college has now been absorbed into the Manchester Metropolitan University. In 1989, Catherine was accepted into an international student exchange program where she would go to Bridgewater State College in Massachusetts, just south of Boston. Now, she'd be there for a year to study, and she flew to Boston in August of 1989. Now, Catherine was bright, friendly, very sociable, but she wasn't interested in any full-on relationship. She was having fun and in the U.S. to study. She was popular back home in England, making friends easily in her hometown of Arundel, as well as her old college campus at Alsaeger. At Bridgewater, again, she was able to make friends and settled in quickly. While she was at Bridgewater, she would meet 27-year-old Curtis Howard, 6'4", computer whiz, who'd earned a $2,000 scholarship from PepsiCo and was a computer science major at the college. He'd won the scholarship for designing a program for inventory management. He was, he was very popular and also on the student board of governors. One of his friends, Chris Johnson, said, He had a lot of girlfriends, a lot of girls calling. He was a leader. Everyone looked up to him. His mother, Barbara, described him as smart, quiet and a high achiever who had, who had attended Boston Technical High School, which has selective admission. As Catherine was a friendly and sociable person when Curtis was around she would speak to him as she would speak to anyone but Curtis took this in a totally different way and he became extremely attracted to Catherine. Now it wasn't long before Curtis asked Catherine out on a date. She politely declined. She wasn't interested in dating Curtis or anyone else at the time. Still Curtis thought Catherine was playing hard to get and he persisted in asking her out. He told her how his parents were very wealthy, owned properties, all that sort of bullshit you'd read on the typical Tinder profile. In reality, he was from a poverty-stricken home and it was the Pepsi-Cola scholarship that gave him the resources to be at college. Eventually, hoping he would finally leave her be, she accepted his invitation to go out. Now... You want to impress on a first date for sure, but Curtis went a little bit overboard. He turns up in a dinner jacket, a stretched limo, has all the flowers and gifts and shit to impress, and this freaks Catherine out a little on his arrival. Now, from what I gather, Catherine's just wearing, you know, nice clothes and all that, but certainly not a cocktail dress going to the Academy Awards. At any rate, they go off to a very, very expensive restaurant. Okay, so at this stage, Curtis is trying really hard, putting in his best shot. All well and good. A bit creepy, but good. Catherine is really uneasy throughout the night, and she ends up going home early. Curtis is not impressed or happy about this, but hey, Curtis, you're the one being awkward. Catherine had made it very, very well known that she was not interested in a relationship, or anyone for that matter. She was happy to just be friends. Still, Curtis became infatuated with Catherine. He was not going to take no for an answer, and he kept on asking Catherine out and giving her gifts. This was really getting stalkerish and super awkward, and Catherine was getting concerned about it. Still, she was firm and not nasty in rebuffing Curtis's advances and all his requests for dates. In December of 1989, with Catherine unable to work out a way to stop Curtis's advances, a tragedy happened. Catherine's father had become sick and was dying. She immediately left Boston to be with her family in Arundel, England, but sadly, her father had passed away. As you can imagine, the emotions inside of her from a father passing will consume her. Finally, being away from Curtis would be a relief. But the thought of him would also now just be a faint memory way back in the back of her mind. She had other things to think of. The thing is, Curtis wasn't going to stop knowing that Catherine was more than 3,000 miles or 5,000 kilometres or so away. He saw it more of a challenge or a hold my beer moment. Curtis sent her letters and even an expensive leather jacket. This really now was beyond awkward, beyond creepy. It was straight out stalking. Unrequited love to the extreme it could have been said. Still Catherine was relieved that she was now home and staying with her sister in Littlehampton West Sussex which is right on the bottom southern coast of England near Brighton. But sending Catherine gifts through the post was not enough. Curtis decided he had to fly to England. So he dropped out of college, got on a plane and headed there. As you can imagine, Catherine was horrified to find out that Curtis was coming to see her. After all the pestering she had to endure while in Boston, it was only the death of her father that got her away from that situation because she had to leave the country. Even though he was still writing letters to her and sending gifts, she was thousands of miles away, separated by the Atlantic Ocean. Now this ass clown was tracking her down while she's just trying to get on with her life, her studies and the death of her father. Catherine rebuffs him again. She wants nothing to do with him and wishes for him to go back home to Boston. Now this pisses Curtis off. He's infatuated with Catherine. Every waking moment he's thinking of her. Everything he does, he does to be closer with her and the eventual aim of winning her over. Now, I don't know if any of Curtis's friends in Boston knew about this infatuation or if if he had just withdrawn himself from all his friends once he got like this. But you would hope that one of them would have tried to talk him through this a bit or talk him out of it. I'm actually thinking he kept it all inside, that no one else really knew the true extent of this problem. Now, Catherine's sister and family were quite aware of Curtis's infatuation. Things would escalate quickly. Curtis, not being able to accept the rebuff from Catherine, broke into her sister Sylvia's place, ransacked it, and scrawled the words, Catherine is dead, on her bedroom door. Her mattress and pillow had been slashed with a knife, and he left a note which read, Catherine ailing, you will burn in hell. On another door, he scratched a swastika, probably to try to confuse investigators. He then went and desecrated Catherine's father's grave. What What a dick. Anyway, it was pretty obvious who had broken in and police apprehended Curtis and he would be charged and convicted of burglary, fined £250 or so and deported from the UK. Now, it's unclear how he was deported if it was just a see you later or a don't come back. It was described as a supervised departure from England. I was unable to find out exactly what was stamped in his passport. But hey, that wouldn't matter, as on his arrival back in Boston, the first thing Curtis did was to trawl the cemeteries for someone who had died with a birth date close to his. Now, I'm unsure if he actually walked around cemeteries or if he was able to use some other method like being online, but he would find the details of a dead nine-year-old kid who died in 1975. Now, this passport application would be refused, and a warrant was issued by the United States District Court at Boston in relation to the charge of making a false statement in an application for a passport. This did not deter Curtis, who then got friend Dwayne Williams to pose wearing his glasses, and got Dwayne to get a passport. It is with this false passport that it looks like Curtis was able to enter the UK again. So what the fuck? This is incredibly creepy. Well, not creepy more than that. It's terrifying. Curtis hires a private investigator who tracks Catherine down to Crewe, which is near her college at Alsega. For five nights... He bases himself at the Holly Trees Hotel at Alsager. The owner would later tell police he was a nice quiet man. He looked like a big American basketball player, but he was not brash in an American way. When he arrived, he told us he would be going out a lot and would stay out late because he was going to lots of parties. Of course, now we know what he was actually doing. He was stalking his prey. Each day and night, he would track down and watch Catherine as she went about a day. Catherine, who was in the middle of her final exams, told friends that she was sure she'd spotted Curtis in the street, but she dismissed it as being paranoid and that she must have been mistaken. On the Wednesday, the 29th of May, 1991, Curtis did a runner on his hotel, drove his green Montego rented car to the college campus at Alcega, waited for the moment Catherine was walking to her car, and as she got into her car, He attacked. Although Catherine fought back, Curtis at 6 foot 4 and a solid build was able to overpower her. Curtis then stabbed Catherine 10 times and slit her throat. He then loaded her body into the boot or trunk of his car and drove 250 miles or 400 kilometers south to Gatwick Airport. He abandoned the car in the car park and caught a flight back home to Boston. Now, there were witnesses to this attack in the car park of the university or the college. Now, they just thought they were a couple that were having just a bit of fun. Anyway, her car with bloodstains would be found soon after. Police would find the abandoned green Montego hire car parked at Gatwick on Saturday morning, the 1st of June. In the boot or the trunk, they found the fully dressed body of Catherine Ayling, in a pool of blood. There were no signs of sexual assault. Soon the FBI were alerted and they were looking for Curtis. The News of the World newspaper splashed Curtis's face on the front page in the fashion of a wanted poster offering $40,000 reward for his capture. When Curtis landed in Boston, he went to his brother Tim's place. Here Curtis was acting weird according to his brother. Curtis then called the now-retired Bridgewater State College Administrator, W. Kirk Avery, and confessed to him that he'd killed Catherine. Avery told Curtis to call the police or hand himself in. When Avery realised Curtis hadn't done this, he called the police himself, and 20 police and FBI raided Curtis's brother's house and arrested him. Now, as a holding charge... They had that warrant for when he tried to get the false passport in the name of that dead nine-year-old kid. In the meantime, UK police were trying to organise an extradition of Curtis to face murder charges there. As you can imagine, Curtis fought the extradition request, saying that with all the media coverage in the UK and the fact that he was a black guy, he couldn't get a fair trial. Well, thankfully, this failed and he was extradited back to England. Now, if you're getting the rage or have already gotten the rage, what is going to happen from here will give you a little brief respite, but then get ready for it. It'll be back. So Curtis is back in the UK, charged with murder, and he goes on trial. Now, the judge would describe him as a devious, dangerous man who could well strike again. Now, because Curtis's defense was able to show he was suffering from a mental illness, he would not be found guilty of murder, rather he was found guilty of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Psychiatrists had diagnosed him as paranoid psychotic with a serious mental illness. His defense said he came from a respectable family and had been a hard-working student with no record of violence. The problem was that he just had this mental illness. The judge said he'd read all the psychological reports from the US and the UK and was satisfied that Curtis was a cunning, devious, violent and dangerous man. He also said, even after the death of Catherine, it's necessary to protect the public, and particularly her sister and her sister's husband, from serious harm. He also said that even though Curtis had pleaded guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, that his responsibility was more than minimal, and that a life sentence for manslaughter was unusual, but it was appropriate in this case. So he gets life, but wait, there's more. There's a non-parole period of only seven years. Now, at the time of sentencing, Catherine's family, of which 14 attended the court, they said the judge did a superb summing up and that they were delighted with the sentence as long as he is never, ever released. She said Catherine would not have forgiven him, rather she would want him to burn in hell. Now, let's jump forward to November 2001. Curtis is now up for parole. And guess what? After only seven years inside for murdering 24-year-old Catherine Ayling, a budding teacher doing her final exams, they let this scum Curtis Howard out. Not only that, but they deport him back to the USA. Now, because he's deported, the parole means nothing. He's as free as anyone else. There is no parole for him in the US. Seven fucking years for stalking and killing 24-year-old Catherine Ailing. As you can imagine, the family of Catherine are fucking ropeable. How can they let this freak out to walk the streets as a free man? You think this paranoid psychotic illness he's just cured himself of? and that no one else will suffer from it? As the judge said, he is cunning and devious. He would have played all the right cards inside knowing he only had seven years until he could get parole. But he had to be a good boy until that day. Catherine's family are terrified that he will get back into the country and track them down as he was able to get into the country easily enough before undetected. He's had seven years to build up his rage. As of this date there have been no reports that he's tried to return to England and luckily no reports of him repeating his obsessions on anyone else. Now, remember the retired administrator that told police where Curtis was hiding out in Boston, that W. Kirk Avery? Well, he did claim the $40,000 reward on offer by the News of the World and he gifted it gifted it to Catherine's College to set up a scholarship fund in her name. Now, I have searched for it, but I've not been able to find out much more about it. But it was a nice gesture anyway. Also, a tulip tree was planted at the Alsager College in remembrance of Catherine. Now, when I research my cases, I often go to Google Maps or Google Earth and have a look at the places involved and check out distances, all that sort of stuff. Now, the Alsega campus was sold to developers And recently, it was levelled to build new homes. Apparently, and sadly, the tulip tree was bulldozed rather than moved elsewhere. Well, if any islanders can update me on the scholarship or the tulip tree thing, please let me know. So that's the case of Catherine Ailing. Another case where it's hard to understand the justice system, how it all works. It was a short episode as well because... To tell you the truth, there's just not that much detail out there on the internet. I'm sure all our thoughts go out to Catherine's family and friends. So that's the end of another show. Now before we get into the shout outs, don't forget the meetup at the Retreat Hotel Brunswick, October 9, 4pm. Thanks for all the new subscribers to YouTube channel. We've got 100 now apparently. Oh, so I'm going to have to really get get there and put some more episodes up for you. So now, onto the new Patreons this week. We've got Beck Maycheck. I think it's Maycheck. Thank you so much, Beck. There's also the Shit I've Learned Abroad Pod. They've come on board. Who, Of course, they'll be at the meetup in Brunswick on the 19th of October as well. Thanks, can't wait to meet. True crime and travel. Now, thanks also to Marie Paris, who I emailed in May about her reward, her mug. Uh, But she had a computer malfunction and didn't get the email. She got in touch with me the other day and she's going to get a mug of rage. So anyone who thinks I may have missed them for any reason, like computer broke down or it might have, you check your junk mail. Maybe I've sent it there. Please let me know. I can sort you out as well. Also, please check your mailing addresses and email addresses as well for Patreon uh, t-shirts and mugs. I They're all tracked, so I will send you tracking details. If the items look lost, please let me know as quickly as possible. Thanks so much to all present and past Patreon supporters of the island. It really does make a difference. And as you know, True Crime Island is a totally listener-supported podcast. It's your podcast. I keep it ad-free, as I know you don't like ads, I don't like them either. It actually plays up with my podcast player and when I am Casting it to another device. So let's try and keep it an ad free. If you want to support the island financially for as little as a dollar a month, you too can become a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island and check out all the levels and rewards. Now, if I do say send you something from Threadless, as I said, it will have tracking. Please monitor this and let me know if there's any issues because. I think I said it last week. Liam in Australia, he's had two shirts not arrive now in a row. So I'm going to sort that out a little bit differently. If you don't want to do a monthly payment, you too can do a one-off donation. That's paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland, just like Zachary Rhinelander. He did it a couple of weeks ago. I don't know how I missed it, Zach. I'm very, very sorry. Anyway... I hope to meet up with you, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair in the coming weeks as I will be going to Thailand. I'll be in Chomburi, but I will be going down to Jumpton as well. So we'll organise something where we can grab a beer. Also, you can support the island by getting hold of some merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, beach towels, fantastic tote bags, but my favourite things are, of course, everybody knows, the mug of rage, all available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Now, my website, truecrimeisland.com, has links to all this stuff. Also, don't order black mugs. They just don't look good. I also have keychains, lapel pins and stickers, which you need to contact me directly for. This can be done by emailing me, cambo, at truecrimeisland.com. That's also the best way to contact me personally for anything else, such as case requests or just to say boomfuckalunga, because the messaging in Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, sometimes it's just too difficult to keep track of it all. So if you really need to talk to me about something, cambo, at truecrimeisland.com, just email me. Now, you don't have to spend money to support the island. You can also rate, review and tell your friends, family and workmates about the island. And if they don't know how to tune in or what a podcast is, show them. Because there's so many podcasts out there, you'll never look at the telly again. Search for True Crime Island on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and join the closed group on Facebook. A big shout out to Curtis in Melbourne. Boom, fuck along a mate. I never know. We might see you down there. Let's hope so. So that's about it for the show tonight. Lots of love to Maggie James and I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night and boomfuckalunga.